0: This episode, we speak with artist Hank Willis Thomas, a leading thinker on monuments and one of the co-founders of Four Freedoms, the largest public art campaign in the history of the United States.
1: My sense is that everyone deserves to be on a pedestal and no one. So that therein lies the, the challenge.
0: I'm your host, Paul Farber. This is Monument Lab. to Monument Lab, a public art and history podcast. Each episode, we'll be talking to artists, activists, and historians about the monuments we've inherited from the past and the people and movements who are critically engaging them today. These are the people building the next generation of monuments through stories of social justice and solidarity. You can read more at monumentlab.com. I'm your host, Paul Farber. Hank Willis Thomas worked with Monument Lab last year in Philadelphia on the prototype monument All Power to All People, a monumental-sized Afro pic installed across from City Hall. He's also produced Raise Up, a sculpture on the grounds of the National Peace and Justice Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. A new survey of his work, Hank Willis Thomas, All Things Being Equal, is out in October from Aperture and the Portland Art Museum. In this episode, we're also joined by Evan Walsh, a photographer and For Freedom's communications coordinator. Hank Willis Thomas, welcome to the first episode of the Monument Lab podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. As an artist, you've worked in museums and in galleries. How did you first get pulled into working in public space?
1: How did I first, first get into doing work in the public? I, there's an artist named Nina Katchadorian who does these really fun and playful kind of public interactions and she taught a class on art and public space when I was in graduate school at CCA and we found an old kind of roundabout and there was a statue in the middle of it and had a gargoyle in it and then we kind of made up a history for the gargoyle and got plaques made and um applied them to it and did an unveiling a re-unveiling about this uh, uh, about this kind of really old <laughs> um unsung um statue and i realized that art in public space can be um we can 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 be fun and all and the, the plaques lasted for like four years that somehow the city thought that maybe they really <laughs> belong there. And uh, then a couple of years later, I was invited by uh, Chris Johnson at the uh, port of Oakland to do a video installation for the, for the airport there. And my friends and I started a collective called Cost Collective where we did uh, several public art projects, but that was the first one the Oakland airport and it was a, a video, um, mosaic where we were asking um, hundreds of people across the Bay Area to uh, post for portraits and then we would combine them to make faces and all these other things. And um, from there, just new projects arose like the Truth Booth and um, other airport projects. And uh, I feel like I'm really just at the beginning of this process, but our, our piece um, at Monument Lab was a, a major breakthrough.
0: In working in public space, there are times when an artist will work closely with the city, and there are other times an artist might work purposely outside of the permission process. In your practice, do you have a preference? Uh, How do you engage that kind of question of permission and authority?
1: I think typically um, when I do things in public space, yeah, I like the idea that someone has to get a lawyer to ask us to take it down to go through the channels um, that kind of make it sanctioned um, I think are exciting because there's a there's different kind of resonance for me that as opposed to some of that kind of like the project that we did that I described earlier that is like more of a kind of guerrilla approach. I mean, that's fun as well, but it's, it kind of has a different end because someone can just remove it.
0: We worked together in Philadelphia on the Citywide Monument Lab exhibition, and your piece, a monumental-sized Afro pic, all power to all people, was installed on the plaza of the Municipal Services Building right across from City Hall. It was the talk of the town. That piece is now entering the collection of the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts right around the corner from City Hall. What inspired that work?
1: Well, that work was largely inspired by my childhood uh, my early childhood in philadelphia and my grandmother is a beautician and i remember when we were kids you know afros were popular and they were metal tined afro picks with a uh, metal handle with a fist on it and it was uh kind of a beautiful object but it definitely hurt <laughs> and there was like and i couldn't understand like I remember, like, uh, okay, this is gonna go into my hair. And, um, but I remember wondering, like, why was there a fist on it? Was it because, it was, did it hurt? Because the fist was a fist to say it's gonna be strong. <laughs> and then I, I, I saw um, um, these Klaus Oldenburg um, sculptures whenever I was downtown in Philadelphia. We'd go around City Hall and you could look up as a kid out of the car and you see, um, like, the clothespin and, um, I started I started thinking about these mundane objects and his work in a way that he would take them and put them into the public and ask us to reconsider domestic space um, and our relationship to modernity um, through these kind of monumental public sculptures. And I realized that there were some kind of objects that were missing, and the Afro-Pic being this really um, potent um, aspect of African-American domestic life. Um, and. Uh, Philadelphia playing a huge role in um, the black power movement and the civil rights movement. I was excited to kind of combine my personal family history with um, the political history of the city through putting this sculpture there.
0: While the sculpture was installed, one of the most remarkable kind of revelations that we had was that any time you went by it, not only would someone be posing for a photo with it, But when they left, they'd leave their fingerprints on the sculpture. It's where people embraced it. It reminded me of bronze sculptures that have a patina that wear over time. And it shows you where people have touched the sculpture and and then changed the artwork. How did seeing your sculpture in public space change your relationship with the artwork?
1: Well, I mean, I think you rarely, when you make art, think that, it, especially when you have a sketch, think that it's gonna really happen. You know, like most things that we sketch don't really become a reality. And so, for me, it just was still. It was more just like, oh, this is this is real, and and this is really out here, and this is. <laughs> I think I still haven't fully come to terms with that reality that it was actually we were able to to make it and put it up and put it up in such a, a prominent place. And um, then seeing the photos and seeing people react to it and, um, you know, family members as well as strangers, um, it just more than anything gave me the impression that this is just the beginning. And that, yeah, there, I, I do remember seeing the fingerprints and the hands on, on, on it. And yeah, there, there's an intimacy there as well.
0: Another one of your monumental sculptures Raise Up, is now installed on the grounds of the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, a poignant national site of commemoration for the thousands of victims of racial lynching. And the site was envisioned by Bryan Stevenson and the Equal Justice Initiative. How did you get involved with the memorial project? And as an artist, how did you prepare to work on that site?
1: When I was invited to participate in the project, it was before the, even the idea of the national memorial was an idea. I think Brian was really wanting to commemorate the the legacy and the history of lynching, and um, had spoken to a number of artists about what that might be and how that might look. Um, but at the time, we were thinking about doing like kind of markers uh, at sites where people. We know people were lynched across the country, and um, over time, mass design got involved, and um, then other artists, and then the museum, uh, the slavery museum, became a part of it and became a pretty massive, um, really complex, ambitious project. The sculpture, I proposed several sculptures, but the one that we decided to manifest was uh, a, 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 a life-size version of, of a sculpture I'd made called Raise Up, which was inspired by a photograph by Ernest Cole of um, South African miners being uh, medically examined or stri- strip searched. When I, I made this sculpture in 2014 in, in February and in South Africa, and in July of that same year, Michael Brown was murdered in, in Ferguson, Missouri. And I, and people um, started to perceive it as the hands up, don't shoot piece because the protesters were saying hands up, don't shoot. And there was a clear relationship between that sculpture and um, that moment. And I, and I remember um, thinking that it was that something that was made with the intention about being something, I, I believe the past is present. And always, and I was really fascinated with the way that something that was made uh, about something that happened fifty years ago and halfway across the world could speak so eloquently to something that was about to happen, Um, and that you know that that suggests the struggle continues, and that there you know the work is really about how many different perspectives there can be on um, a, a similar kind of idea or, or image. And, and when we decided to to remake it as a public sculpture for the National Memorial for Peace and Justice, there were other elements I titled it Raise Up because also thinking about baptism and salvation as well as surrender, uh, which I guess they have this connection. Um, and um, the struggle of uh, generations of people of African descent all over the world um, for, to be um,
0: given... And accepted as full human beings. Since the National Memorial for Peace and Justice opened earlier this year, have you visited the site? What is your experience now seeing your sculpture in that context of profound reckoning and sorrow, but also an important intervention into the way we think about history?
1: Well, I think um, I'm always kind of more dumbfounded and, and in awe. And I think more than me, I'm always really surprised by the vision of the curators and the designers because placement is extremely important and all the work that people don't see that goes behind the scene to coordinate getting the work made and put and produced and engineered and uh, installed in public space. Um, there's a lot of things that can go wrong and a lot of things that, um, can make it not worth doing at some point, and the the fact that Brian Stevenson was able to um, pull together this collaboration between artists, historians, architects, designers, um, landscapers, and you know construction companies and different kinds of donors and all of these people, I, you know, to make this really much larger contribution to American history that was really missing. Um, that was fascinating. And to just and just to see myself in the work as a small part of that is, uh, yeah, it's dumbfounding.
0: You mentioned this a bit, but thinking about placement, you know, as a curator, I have a checklist in my head uh, around placing an artwork, thinking about sightline, thinking about the ways that it may invite people in. As an artist, what are you thinking about when placing work in public space? Do you have specific goals in mind
1: for me it's almost always like are they really crazy enough to do this okay let's <laughs> just try that and see what happens i don't i I, t- I do tend to go into these situations with disbelief and what i as more projects become a reality i think the challenge for me becomes to be more creative or more radical in my kind of um proposal <laughs> Um, But, you know, I like to do it step by step so I can kind of learn as I'm going.
0: We are in an intense moment around public and civic life. On the one hand, we have live-streamed political speech, and on the other, we have clashes around symbols that we've inherited from the past, monuments and other kinds of history. In your work, how do you approach that relationship between political speech and symbols in public?
1: Well, I think we are moving away from um the era of traditional um Western um representation uh in, in monuments where it was typically a, a, a European man with a weapon or, or or riding a beast um who was a kind of uh, unassailable hero. And um part of that is Part of moving away from that is this reconsideration of who do who are we? Who do we want to represent? What values do we want to represent? And how do we also make space for intersectionality, for complexity, and an openness to interpretation that uh, that maybe a monument doesn't necessarily have to be um, something that is unilaterally um, admired or, or perceived, and so i uh, i I like to think of what we are doing um as planting seeds you know and and what art in public spaces should do is ask questions. you know I think um, if everything in public space has a designated function that should that um, that doesn't challenge us, I think we can really lose sight of um what kind of can make a society better. You know, if we, if we become too comfortable with where we are and um, the, the, the the generic stories we've been told about the past.
0: We are in this moment of questioning the role of monuments. Do you have a sense of who deserves to be on a pedestal or what symbols we should elevate? Or is it more about asking questions for you?
1: My sense is that everyone deserves to be on a pedestal and no one. So that therein lies the the challenge.
0: You've spoken about the ways for you that the past is present and thinking about a body of work that you've created, inspired by Ernest Withers' iconic image of Memphis sanitation workers on strike in 1968, each carrying the placard proclaiming, I am a man. You have remixed and adapted those words. Earlier this year, the city of Memphis, on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of that protest, and also the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, installed a memorial and monument that replicated that placard. What is your approach to working with images and archives from the past, especially those from earlier eras of activism and civil rights struggles, that clearly still speak to us?
1: I was rejected for that one, so I had my own proposal.
0: What was your proposal?
1: Um, well, the, so very similar to the one that was created was my backup version, <laughs> except for I, I would have, I might think it might have been slightly better, um, but um, it was, I think, an overly complicated proposal.
0: <laughs> Can you share it here?
1: Um, there were the signs. Um, there was a mountaintop. <laughs> um, there was, and a, a, a stretched out hand that the pilot was invited to, um, come into, to, to, rest in, um, too much, doing too much. But, um, it was also, yeah, but it's also, um, and now I'm thinking like, okay, how do I modify that idea to make it better? <laughs> um, but in general, I think we live, it's great to live in the present and to even live in tomorrow but I think it's also important to reflect on the past, and there's so much to be learned from past political movements and moments, um, learn so that as history repeats itself, perhaps we can just kind of turn the, the dial just a little bit towards progress, <laughs> towards um, greater opportunity for all, and not forgetting that the, the struggle for equal and human rights is a perennial struggle that like, it's never going to be over. I like to think of the work that I make as, as kind of road marks, mile markers that we kind of remember and, and and see kind of where we come from, but also keep thinking about where we need to go. And, um, I, I, I also believe, you know, at some point we don't know what should be preserved and what should be, what should be conserved and what should be, um, maybe put out the pasture, um, but, you know, at some point, you know, certain ideas do kind of live out their, um, necessity. And there's a real question about how do we reconcile with that, you know? Um, but in my work, it's, I'm constantly trying to mine for things that we, I think that I have overlooked or need to make reminders to myself about, um, what to do and, and how to think of it. So when I remixed those paintings from the "I Am a Man" Memphis sanitation workers march protest, I had things that said like "I am human," "I am many," "I am amen," and and "Ain't I a woman?" Um, to think about um, going from "I am a man" to "I am amen," um, and the revelation that you know each of us uh, is a blessing in a sense, and recognizing that hopefully will inspire us to do more than we think um, we have capacity to do.
0: In a new survey of your work, Hank Willis Thomas, All Things Being Equal, published by Aperture and the Portland Art Museum, it's remarkable to see the scope of the collaborations that you've been a part of and have helped direct. I'm thinking about Question Bridge, Truth Booth, and of course Four Freedoms, among many others. What kind of relationships are necessary for collaboration to work with an artist, both at its center and an artist as among a group of people trying to make an artwork happen?
1: Um, The the core is love and um, and, uh, a willingness to fail, because when and every collaboration, no collaboration ever goes smoothly (laughs) and, uh, things go wrong and are unexpected because there's not a roadmap for how two or four or 10 or 40 or a thousand or (laughs) tens of thousands come together, to make something. And, um, all of us have egos, all of us um, need to be validated in different ways and all of us have something to contribute. And, um, Sometimes our egos need to to, to listen and, and take a step back, and sometimes we need to speak up when uh, no one else wants to listen to us, and there's a delicate balance in those situations where I've been in places with collaborators where three people were on one side and one person was on one side, and then everyone's like really aggra- aggravated and frustrated, and at one point, the one person put their foot down, and the three of us were like, it's okay, <laughs> <laughs> and and you would assume that, you know, three people are always, that the majority in a democracy, the majority is right. But sometimes those three people can be misguided and, and be wrong. And if that person hadn't gotten so frustrated, we might not have really understood their point and they were actually right. Um, so um, that's, and that's kind of. The, the, the process of making, and I think that's, a, for me, that's why I say it's about love, because there's this generosity that has to happen, that, like, I trust that you would not bring anything to this that is not with the best intention, and in no, in, in same with me.
0: You have explored truth and lies in your work. Truth Booth has traveled around the country and the world collecting testimonials from people about how they define truth. And likewise, your poster and billboard, All Lies Matter, includes the removal of just one letter from the statement, All Lives Matter, to point out the cruel nature of that statement. How are you thinking about truth in this current moment? And as an artist, what do you feel like is important for you to put forth around our understanding of the concept?
1: Well, a fundamental element of Question Bridge Black Males, which was a video mediated megalog between African American men where we were asking self identified black men to ask and answer each other's questions. Our idea was to challenge this idea of the generic man on the street black male perspective that um, the news sometimes tries to get, et cetera, and to show that there are, even within a specific demographic, you know, if you ask five people, same question you're going to get five different answers um because they have five different truths and so that is applied exponentially in in the truth booth as a manifestation of that where we ask people to go into this video recording booth and start with the phrase the truth is and you know then each person comes in with a different truth because you know the truth changes for every person moment to moment um and Fundamentally, a lot of what my work is about is how we can all be looking at the very same thing, but see something different. Because um, you're you're standing here, and I'm standing there, and there's someone else there. And um, yeah, the, the example that I was talking about was with Question Bridge with my collaborator Kamal, who um, we who is uh, was at that time the only woman in our collaboration, and she's also the only person who's quote biracial. So intersectionality as a collaborator was m- much more important to her than three African-American men who were like, you know, used to being put into a simple box. And she was like, all my life I've been put in, been chosen, you know, asked to put myself in a box and I can't fit in any sim- sim- simple box. And that's what the truth, you know, the truth is that, that that really when we thought about it, like, oh, yeah, we don't sit in to neatly into simple box. So I think uh, my work is really trying to get myself and others to think about themselves outside of the box. And so All Lives Matter um, is as much an indictment of myself as it is anything else. It's up as a billboard in St. Louis, um, and you know, where All Lives Matter was shouted as a way to shout down. Uh, Black Lives Matter, Um, and someone said to me once, you know, all all lives matter, but some more than others. And and I do believe all lives matter, but the reality is that most of the time when people said all lives matter, they didn't really mean it. And so the work is trying to um, call that out. And also, I don't know, there's something weird that happens. I don't even know if I'm making any sense, but well, something weird happens in our brain when we're looking at it where we see the truth. Like, our like it says All that. Someone just wrote me an email like, oh, I really want to get one of those All Lives Matter shirts because that's what it says, right? And so, like, again, we can be looking at the same thing and seeing something different.
0: You've worked in commercial spaces before, and I'm thinking about the time you flew a plane over Miami with trailing text that read... Ads imitate art. Art imitates life. Life imitates ads. Do you have an approach to commercial space that differs from the ways that you work in public, especially when you're thinking about these really important notions of politics and identity?
1: Uh, not re- all. I really want is to kind of mess things up a little bit so that smarter, better artists come into the space and feel invited and do smarter, better things. <laughs> so it's just like, is it, is it, my biggest question is like, is this passable? Like, will, will I regret putting this out there? <laughs> Cause it, I realize that most of the ways that we see, um, art in public space, like quote unquote art or, 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 or imagery, um, is, about, is about transaction. You know, it's like, you can buy this product or, you know, bow to this person. And, um, I think that we need to really break that model up a lot, and um, so yeah, I like to put questions in the public. And with Four Freedoms, where we're doing billboards in all fifty states, the question is like, what is what is this? Like, is this an ad for an artist? Is it an ad for a, a brand? Is it a political statement? Is it? Um, and the truth is that it might be all those things and maybe only one of those things, depending on where you are, you know. And, and so, yeah, the goal is just to mess it up a little bit.
0: You're a prolific Instagram user. I'm curious how Instagram has changed your life.
1: I realized actually 15 years ago that there are more pictures taken in a single second than any of us can make sense of in our entire lives. And... Um, we maybe reached a critical mass of like images being created that it's important that some people start to investigate the images that we're making and to think about um the present moment um, with a little bit of a distance so with a lot of my work where i'm appropriating images from the past and and for media and popular culture i'm really trying to get myself and viewers to take a step back from kind of the, the fleeting moments of scrolling on our phones, um, and look at our culture look at our society, because these ads are really very much a reflection of our values at a specific point in time. And what's fascinating about Instagram is we become our own advertising agencies. We become our own branding companies that like, aren't I okay? Isn't my life good? Isn't what I'm doing important? Uh, will you please validate it with a like? Um, and really, we've kind of all kind of invested into a culture of mass distraction where um, we try to make progress through distraction. We try to improve our lives through distraction. Like, I'm here in this amazing place. I'm having the best time. And now I'm going to stop that to, like, make sure other people know. Um, and so for me, it's a really ambivalent relationship where I, I'm i trying to figure out how to make it uh, productive space uh, social media for myself because there is a lot of learning that happens on there but how do i apply that learning um and circulate ideas because it's also what's beautiful about is it we become a hive mind you know what's trending is like oh wow and like hashtags are like portals into like a massive curation you know um so there's for me multiple angles to it that like i'm trying to kind of step back and, and look, but I'm also, you know, really in the wormhole. <laughs> and, and I'm part of what I'm—I'm I'm usually part of what I'm trying to critique.
0: You started an artist-run super PAC with Eric Gottesman in Four Freedoms. How does this project differ or relate to other kinds of political action committees or ways that people are engaging politics?
1: Well, we, we started off as a super PAC. We're no longer functioning as a super PAC because, um, there is a certain amount of risk that other nonprofits kind of take on when they engage in political speech. But we started as a super PAC really for that very reason that we wanted to challenge, um, the role of art in civic life and the role of artists in political speech. And, um, we actually never did what the super PACs supposed to do, which were supposed to either lionize or demonize a specific candidate. Um, we really um, were trying to kind of open the space for critical discourse and political discourse. And um, over the past few years, um, not just Eric and myself, but also why Gallery and Michelle Wu and now Evan and um, Blaze Walsh and Emma Nuzzo and a huge, huge, huge team um, Taylor, I can keep calling, <laughs> um, but a huge team of like you know forty of us, I think are doing we're in our own hive mind, <laughs> as crazy as it is, um collaborating with hundreds of artists and hundreds of institutions across the country, doing exhibitions, town halls, and billboards in all fifty states under this name of the fifty state initiative, and um again, we're just trying to mess it up. <laughs> we're just trying to say, okay, political speech has become too simple. And um, really, kind of the way that art functions our society is too, fun- is too simple. And we need to really blur the lines, because all art is political. And really, pol- politicians are designing our, si- our, our society. And they're creating our world through the laws that they create and the way they govern. And that is a, a creative act as well. And um, they tend to operate in doing their jobs as if it's not a creative act (laughs) and therefore repeating the same um, issues and, and coming to the same solutions to problems that aren't getting solved.
0: We're going to take a very quick break, but when we're back, we'll continue with Hank Willis Thomas and be joined by Evan Walsh of Four Freedoms. This is Monument Lab.
2: Hi everyone, a new opportunity for Monument Lab. We are accepting applications for the inaugural Monument Lab National Fellows Program, supported by a generous grant from the CERDNA Foundation. This fellowship will support individuals around the country whose ongoing projects address long-term inequities and monuments and engage new creative approaches to public art, history, and memory. Applications are also welcome from high school students around the country with existing projects that use art, activism, history, journalism, and other tools to approach monuments in their communities. Interested candidates can learn more and apply at monumentlab.com.
0: We are back with Hank Willis Thomas, and we're now joined by Evan Walsh from Four Freedoms. Evan, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks for having me. How did you get involved with the creative and collaborative team at Four Freedoms?
2: Yeah, I was working as a TA at Anderson Ranch outside Aspen, Colorado, um, in the photography program. And there's definitely a lot of touch points with the Four Freedoms team at Anderson Ranch. Um, But I met Wyatt Gallery, who was working for Four Freedoms. Um, He was there for a show that was opening uh, and I had known about Four Freedoms. And so when I heard he was coming, I kind of hunted him down. And, you know, I was like, Wyatt, I'm really in- interested in Four Freedoms and what you guys are doing. And so I just kept emailing and emailing and emailing. And then uh, almost a year ago, I think it was this week, actually, I started uh, Four Freedoms. And then we started this crazy journey that we've been on this year.
0: You're an artist as well. Your photography project, The Spaces Between Us, explores relationships between male friends. Just curious, as an artist, how much of your day is spent thinking in ways that relate to the way you make art? And how have you had to push your own practice and thinking beyond that?
2: Yeah, that's a really great question. I think it's changed, too, since I joined Four Freedoms. But I remember a year ago, I was kind of in this headspace where I was at... I just graduated college and every day at college, you just spend time with your friends all day. And I kind of went into this headspace where I was living in the mountains, I didn't know anyone, and I was starting over. Um, And I think the way that I thought about it before I graduated was just that I was constantly inundated with friendship and closeness. And the space between us examines the boundaries that come up between me and male friends and thinking about, you know, we're always told we're not allowed to be emotional with our male friends or we're not allowed to be close. And there's this kind of distance that we have to keep. And that's the idea of the space between us. So that was kind of fascinating to me. But then after I graduated, you know, I didn't really have that connection anymore with anyone. It's kind of becomes this solitary thing. And then, so moving from Colorado to New York and then constantly being around the Four Freedoms team, um, this idea of connectivity between Men, I think, also transcends in a way. It's really just that all of us as humans are really looking for a way to feel connected to one another. And I think that kind of root, that idea kind of comes into my work at Four Freedoms.
0: Four Freedoms is partnering with hundreds of collaborators across the country and is really driven by the 50-state initiative. How does it operate and how do you work across these different states?
2: Yeah, about a year ago in November, we started building out this 50-state initiative toolkit. And it was looking at all of the different forms of activations that For Freedoms has produced independently since it was founded. Uh, It was billboards, town halls, and exhibitions. we had kind of done one-off activations of these three different pieces. And then around 2017, we started modeling out this idea that What if you did a billboard town hall and exhibition at the same place? So, for example, we did one in Houston where uh, we had a, a billboard that said, where do we go from here? And then we had an exhibition called Margin and Center, which explored ideas of being a photographer and what it is like to have perspective, both from the margins and in the center, related to the idea of borders. And then we did a town hall right next door. And so we realized that there was kind of this multifaceted way of piloting out conversation and that, you know, exhibition spaces are more insular and town halls are more insulars, but billboard, billboards are very public. And so merging these kind of different forms of dialogue and public art, we led this into this scalable model where we went to all of our partners around the nation. So our coworker, Emma, who Hank, Hank is, that is the only one crazy enough to just reach out randomly to 250 partners in all 50 states and say, hey, we want you to be a part of this. And she's really built this huge network of partners who are all doing billboards, town halls, and exhibitions in all 50 states, D.C. and Puerto Rico from September 1st to November 6th, the midterm elections. And so the way that we created it by doing this toolkit, we made it really scalable. So we're kind of training them training these partners how to do the activations, but then empowering them that they can be a voice for their local community and that we as 4Freedom's team, we don't need to come in and say, this is how it has to be. They can put it on their own way, but then they come back to us and we help uplift the stories they're telling. It's still this massive beast that we have trouble like getting our hands around, but that's kind of the joy of the project is that it's grown beyond... What we even imagine. I mean, I think we initially were like, let's get 30, 40 partners. And we had no idea that it would get up to over 200 in all 50 states.
0: This is a question for both of you, Evan and Hank. Are there days when you feel like you're running a political campaign in addition to a public art project?
1: I mean, I would say the stress, um, the stress from time to time feels like we're running a Political campaign. The difference is that we have no idea what we're doing. Maybe that's what a political campaign also is. Is, is, is these are people who just driving, and driving, and driving, and driving. Um, we, I think, they create. Frankly, the creativity is in our openness and our willingness to respond creatively to new challenges. And something like this project has never been done before. This is the largest creative collaboration in American history. And um, every day we reach, we find new obstacles, we, but we also find new opportunities. And uh, if we haven't or hadn't actually faced some of these obstacles, we wouldn't be able to solve new problems. And so um, it's, 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 it is actually really fun in, in that way. Um, there is no winning though. <laughs> I think our, our, our success isn't gonna be measured in a very simple way because we are anti-partisan and really our, our hope is that people just ask critical questions and asking critical questions can lead hopefully to better solutions and better leadership.
2: I like this idea that there's no winning. Um, I think every day when we're doing our work, it just is really fulfilling in that way. And since we're not marching towards this end goal of success, there is definitely this constant feel- feels like it goes on forever because the 50 state initiative is just one thing that we're doing this fall, but it's kind of mapping the cultural infrastructure of the United States. We like took the idea of the 50 state initiative from politicians dreaming to doing a 50 state campaign. Um, and now that we're doing it, we're seeing that we've created a network of artists and we've created windows for opportunity and interconnectivity Um, And that's something that I never really imagined would have happened. But in in terms of this political environment, um, using political strategy and using political thinking, it definitely feels like a a political campaign, but then it kind of transcends beyond it. And that we're creating this super large community that has risen to be so much larger than we ever imagined.
0: You've provided a blueprint for your partners, and Monument Lab is proud to be one of your partners on For Freedom. And
1: inspiration. Yeah, doing a citywide collaboration that had never been done before by putting artists um, in public space challenging of what a monument is is really something that inspired us to go national.
0: <laughs>
1: Scale up. Yeah. So what are you doing next, <laughs> global
0: or intergalactic Monument Lab? Maybe it starts right here. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you've shared this blueprint. What have you learned from your partners and listening to them at town halls or seeing how they take the concept of four freedoms and make it their own?
1: Well, Adam, in Chicago. Now, do you want to talk about that or, or, or you were in Syracuse or
2: photo? Where did- yeah, I was in I was in Syracuse uh, last week. We Eric and I from our team. uh created a show called Be Strong and Do Not Betray Your Soul, which pulled from all of the artists that have ever been in the Lightwork Artist in Residency program. And so we picked 50 images from the collection of images that artists have donated as part of their residency. And we went up there last week for uh, the Gallery Talk reception, and it kind of became this platform for the Syracuse community. And that was one thing that I I don't think I was expecting. It made sense when it happened, but there were local community leaders there, organizers, like they were saying, oh, the first black judge in Syracuse was there, the head of the ACLU chapter in Syracuse. The, The team at Lightwork had said that those were the type of people that they were trying to get to come to Lightwork activations for a really long time. And they were really proud that they showed up. And I think they said that this idea of this four freedoms element is what drew them out because it was this platform for discussion. And, you know, beyond an exhibition, the, the gallery reception became this space. It was full capacity. There were tons of people there. And then our gallery talk turned into a town hall. People were asking questions. They were giving their feedback and saying their opinions and saying how the work had affected them. What really surprises me about the campaign is that the ways that people have really tailored their activations to actually fit their community and they think really creatively about how their community will respond and they just take it so far. I mean, and at Syracuse, too, they did six billboards around the community and there's a lot of controversy around a highway in Syracuse that divides. Two sides of the city and on the the one side is more upper class and the other side is a disenfranchised community and the city is actually thinking about trying to redefine um, the highway. Their question is are they going to turn it into a grid? Are they going to make it a tunnel? And they actually put a Four Freedoms billboard that says be strong and do not betray your soul. It transcended what Eric and I had curated and became this platform for the Syracuse community to talk about local issues and to come together and also celebrate community. And that's one thing that we say that we're trying to cultivate, but I think when you actually see it happening and you see other people taking the reins of that, it's really beautiful.
1: Yeah. And in the past couple of days, I was in Chicago for a town hall that was in a food desert, but it was an urban garden that an artist, Emmanuel Pratt and the group called the Sweetwater Foundation created. It's like four blocks of, of, of urban garden in literally a food desert where I could only find um burritos to eat um and you know there was collaboration with the smart museum and with expo chicago and that was like an art fair in in an art museum collaborating with a a a a community garden to do a a town hall discussion with artists who've been collaborating for 50 years and march for our lives um that was just astounding and then yesterday i was at the delaware art museum um, where they held a town hall and it was about education in the state of Delaware, which I thought was going to be the most boring thing I ever went to. It was like, why is an art museum doing something <laughs> about the Board of Education? And it was one of the most impassioned and uh, kind of informative uh, experiences I've actually had. And and I realized that like, yeah, that's why that's the, the center of this collaboration is that We don't know the answers, but we know the questions. And these institutions that are doing these amazing things under the banner of Four Freedoms are really changing their communities, also changing our lives.
0: Hank Willis Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. And thank you, Evan Walsh, for connecting as well. Thank you. Thank you. You can find more about Four Freedoms at fourfreedoms.org. That's F-O-R freedoms.org. Hank Willis Thomas's All Things Being Equal opens this month at the Portland Art Museum in Oregon. Next episode, we'll speak to monument art historian Kirk Savage, author of Monument Wars.
2: I mean, they make their intentions quite
0: clear. This was, Building Monuments was part of a multi-pronged program to retell the story of the Civil War from a white Southern slaveholder point of view. You can listen to Monument Lab and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. And if you like the show, remember to leave a rating or review. It really helps. The Monument Lab Podcast is supported by the Cerdna Foundation. This podcast is written and produced by Paul Farber and Justin Geller. Designer and associate producer is William Roy Hodgson. Sound engineer, Justin Geller. Editorial coordinator, Steph Garcia. All music on the podcast is original by Mokita. I'm your host, Paul Farber. For more, Visit us at monumentlab.com or find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.